Good evening. So as Ben just mentioned, we're going to be in two places. I'll give them to you right now so you can jump in there, and then we'll, we'll dig in in a minute. Matthew chapter 28 and Acts chapter 1. So you can put a finger in both of those and hold on to them. I promise not to jump back and forth too much. Uh, for one thing, sometimes I get confusing, but for a second thing, I've only got like 20 minutes. So we're not going to be in a lot of places. We're going to try to dig in a little bit. So Matthew chapter 28 uh, is a familiar text, and tonight we're going to be talking about the power for the church particularly what it means to understand what God has done. And then once we understand what he has done through Jesus, what does that mean for us as the people of God? What does that mean for the church and who we are and then what we do? Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. So we'll start there, and I'll read them in just a minute. But basically what we have in Matthew 28 is the mission for all disciples. And by all disciples, I mean anyone who has come to Christ, everyone. And the mission given to us in Matthew 28 is familiar. It's, it's commonly called the Great Commission, uh, but I'm sure that you've heard it before. And tonight as we look at it, what I really want you to remember as we go into Acts chapter 1 right after it is this. Jesus gives us the mission right in Matthew 28. When we get into the book of Acts, what we have is after the resurrection and the ascension, we have actually how he tells us to do it. So in Matthew 28, it says these words in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So keep your other figure in Acts chapter 1 and flip over there with me. These events are kind of like an overlap. And as Luke was present when Jesus was saying those words in Matthew 28, he is the writer in Acts chapter 1. And he's the carryover between these two. And we have to put ourselves in the position of hear, the hearers that day, right? So I always try to, when I'm walking our way through Scripture, we're trying to look at things, I'm trying to say, what were they hearing when he was right there? And how was it impacting them? These disciples had just witnessed the resurrection, right? Like, the single most miraculous event to ever have happened. They just witnessed it. And you could almost kind of like, when I'm thinking about it, you can feel the tension, right? They're kind of probably, now that they know Jesus rose from the dead, he spent these 40 days talking with them and seeing over 500 others. They're probably up on their toes, right? And holding their breath. What's he going to do next? What's the encore from a resurrection? What do you do for that, Right? How's he going to top that one? How is he going to keep up these miraculous works that he's been doing all these three and a half years that he's been walking with these men? How does it get any better now? And they're all waiting for the next super miraculous thing for Jesus to do. And what does Jesus do? He leaves. Hold on. They're all holding their breath for this. And Jesus says, here's what you're going to do. I know you're waiting for me to do something. That's what we've been doing for the last three and a half years. But now, here's what you're going to do. You're going to be my witnesses. You're going to go to all the nations. You're going to make disciples. 
And they're thinking probably in their head, or at least I would have been if I was standing there, wait, that's what you're good at. We've been watching you. We keep trying this, keep messing it up. It's not really working out for us. Seems to work really well when you do it. So why don't you stick around and keep doing it and we'll keep watching. But that's not what he says. He says, you are, will be my witnesses. You will go. So here in Acts chapter one, we have Luke who was there through everything, witnessed the resurrection, saw, listened to the great commission. And now we see these recordings of events. So in Acts chapter one is where we really want to dig in. Remember the context here. The resurrection has changed everything. The disciples were waiting for the next huge event. Jesus says those words in Matthew 28. The Great Commission and the ascension into heaven are the culmination of all these, these, there's these phrases in scripture. So it says that Jesus here in Acts chapter one, he was taken up, right? There's these previous taken up occurrences in scripture. We see some in the Old Testament. I'll name a couple. One, in Deuteronomy chapter 34, Moses was taken up to Mount Nebo. And what happened? He died. And what did that signify for the people? Moses was taken up into Mount Nebo, and it was a transfer of power and leadership to Joshua. What's another one? In 2 Kings chapter 2, Elijah was taken up by chariots of fire into heaven as Elisha, his guy behind him, watched. And what did that signify? As he was taken up, man, Elisha, you're on. And that's what's happening here in Acts chapter 1. Jesus is taken up, and it's the greatest taken up out of all the other ones. And what does it signify? He's saying to the church, you're on. This is it. I've done this part. I've done all the fathers asked me to do. After the resurrection, he pulls them together. And as he's talking with them, he then ascends into heaven. And look what we got in Acts chapter 1 from Luke. Verse 1 says this. In this book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. And after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, to them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to deport from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And here's Luke's recording of the ascension in verse six. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And let's just pause there for a minute. This particular question, I, when I read it again, especially in Acts, I start to envision a road trip with parents and kids. Okay, anybody ever experienced one of those? Okay, what's the question you keep getting asked? Are we there yet? And that's what the disciples are doing. They've been asking him about the kingdom coming to earth the entire time they've been following him around. And it's almost like that question. Okay, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And now Jesus, he's risen from the dead. He spends his time with them and they're basically asking the same question. So are we there yet? Is now the time? You gonna do this? It takes me to back to when I was a kid in the car. It also takes me back to, you know, like yesterday in the car because I have children. So we're always asking, are we there yet? And that's what the disciples are doing. But it's so important how Jesus responds. He responds with another parental response. 
This one I got a lot when I was a kid. He essentially says to the disciples, that's need to know information and you don't need to know. Okay? I used to get that one from my dad all the time. Okay? Hey, that's a need to know basis and you don't need to know. But that's what he says to them. They ask the question, he says to them in verse seven, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the father is fixed by his own authority. He just kind of like shuts down that question, says, we're not there yet, and you're not going to know when we are there. Don't worry. You don't need to know that. That's not the most important thing. But he follows it up with what is the most important thing. He says, whether this restoration of the kingdom of Israel, this military and political power that they were looking for to come back to the nation of Israel, whether or not that happens now or ever is not their concern, Jesus tells them. But here is what is your concern. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus essentially transitions their question that is not a new question. They've been asking him this question and he keeps not answering it. And he says, that's for the Father to know, not for you, but here's what you do need to know. You need to know why you're still here. You're still here for a reason. See, the disciples had to start to understand that they only stayed on earth and didn't ascend with Jesus for one reason. He left them there for one reason. Fulfill the promise given to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. You will be a blessing to all the nations. It culminates in Christ and it goes out through the church. Be a blessing to all the nations. But he doesn't just give him that. He tells him exactly how to do it. So I'm going to give you a step-by-step, he says here to his disciples. Don't get fixated on a question that you don't need to know because you don't need to know. But instead, focus on why you're still here. He's ascending to heaven. They're not. There's a reason for that. He states it clearly to him in verse 8. He says in verse 9, we're going to come back to 8 in a minute, but he says in verse 9, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said to them, and this is one of my favorite sarcastic responses in all of Scripture. These two angels look at all these guys staring at the sky and they say to him, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? (laughs) Well, because the guy who just rose from the dead, that we've committed our lives to, that we're waiting for the next major miraculous event, now just mysteriously floated up into heaven. That's why we're staring. We don't even know what to do next. And the angels say, why are you looking up at the sky? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He's going to come back. And the question that's left with these disciples is, he's going to be back. What are you going to do in the meantime? What are you going to do? What are you going to do with what he all just showed you, demonstrated, healed, miracles, all these things, resurrection and ascends into heaven. And they're all staring at the sky and the angels say, hey, he's coming back. Okay. He's not gone forever. What are you going to do? 
What are you going to do? The only reason that you and I don't disappear into heaven the moment that we come to faith in Christ is because he left us with a mission to do. I mean, otherwise, that would be the prime opportunity, right? The exact millisecond that the Holy Spirit regenerates my heart before I screw it up, right? Hopefully before the next thought even comes into my head. That would be the perfect time for God to take me right out of here, right? Right at regeneration. The problem is he chose not to do that for a specific reason. And if we don't remember the reason, we'll live our whole lives walking in Christ, following him, wandering around, staring at the sky. Jesus sent angels to get the disciples to snap out of it. He says, hey, hey, guys, don't keep staring. He just said something to you, literally like a couple seconds ago. Remember? Don't keep staring at the sky. Get into the mission. Get to work. This is the switch between Jesus doing his incarnate earthly ministry and all the miracles, all the things that he's been doing with these guys all along. He makes the transfer of focus to the mission. And he leaves it for the disciples and for the church. He doesn't just leave them with it. He gives them a specific outline. What is that outline? It comes in three parts. And the entire rest of the book of Acts, if you walk your way through, everything from chapter one on is split into these three movements of mission. The first one in chapters one through seven is how those disciples in the 120 after Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit filled them and empowered them, they went out and they reached first Jerusalem. That's where they were. And they went right into the streets. Jerusalem was a diverse city. There was lots of different people coming and going. There were Jews from all over the place that had come there for Pentecost. So in that time frame to do a celebration of a feast. So there was the ability to reach Jerusalem and then have the gospel go home with all those folks. So the first step he gives them is Jerusalem. He says, you will be my witnesses after you receive power. I often have to remind myself when I look at something that appears daunting that I'm not sure I want to get involved in or take a step in because what if it doesn't go right? What if we don't get to the end? What if we don't accomplish that goal? I often have to remind myself, hey, Rob, the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that Holy Spirit resides in you. Resides in you, resides in me. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that can get you up out of bed in the morning. Because the same Holy Spirit that did all the miracles that these disciples were standing and waiting for Jesus to do more of. They wanted to see more. They wanted to follow more. They wanted to be part of more. He says to them, no, I'm leaving for now. You're going to get the Holy Spirit. And I want you to do something very specific be my witnesses in Jerusalem first, then Judea, then Samaria, then to the other most parts of the world. And the whole rest of the book is just a recording of how they did that. So as you read through Acts, chapters one through seven is the gospel reaching Jerusalem. 
Then chapters 8 through 12 are Judea and Samaria being inundated with the gospel. And then verses chapters 13 through 28 is the recording of Paul's missionary journeys with Barnabas and Silas and working with Timothy and Titus and the gospel going outside of Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. At that point, all the way out. There's some interesting transitions that happen in scripture, but this is, for me, on this side of the cross and the resurrection, this is the most important transition. Jesus says, I'm going to go. I'll be back. And in the meantime, do your job. Even better than Bill Belichick would have said it, right? Not do your job. Like, do your job even better. Jesus looks at them, and then they don't get the point. They're staring at the sky, and two angels come down and say, guys, hey, he just literally just told you what to do. Don't stand here with your mouths open. This is the power of the church. This is the power of the Holy Spirit, that as he indwells you and I, he sends us to do the amazing work that Jesus started and then told us to continue. The Holy Spirit comes in at Pentecost, and he basically, the, the wonderful, one of the most wonderful things in the book of Acts in the first century church is this. You get to see a bunch of disciples who are tripping over themselves to this point. I mean, making all kinds of gaffes, public, private, all kinds of mess-ups. You get to see those same disciples start preaching, healing, and spreading the gospel with some power that they previously, obviously, did not have. You got two brothers fighting over who's going to be seated closer to Jesus in heaven. You got Peter shooting his mouth off all the time and chopping people's ears off. And they think that's going to be effective. And they're, they're, they're good-hearted men. They want to do it. They just didn't have the power to do it. And then when the Holy Spirit comes in, it all of a sudden transforms them. There's five specific ways. There's even more ways that the Holy Spirit transformed this group of guys that are tripping over themselves up to this point. It makes the Holy Spirit makes them more effective in witness and ministry. I mean, instantly, Peter's sermon. I mean, Peter goes from not being able to put something together that's super helpful verbally to putting together probably the greatest sermon ever preached. And it's the same Peter, but the second one's empowered by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, it makes an effective proclamation of the gospel. Up to this point, the disciples actually were not super effective at sharing the good news. They kept trying, but then they would always kind of step back and watch Jesus do it. And rightly so. Thirdly, it gives them power for victory over sin. And this, in the life of a believer, is something we have to remember constantly, or sin will just beat you down. But the Holy Spirit is the power for you and I to defeat sin in our lives. Jesus made the way for it. He defeated sin, Satan, and death so that we can live in that freedom. Now, it doesn't always feel like it. It didn't always feel like it, even... Take, for instance, the Apostle Paul. As he traveled, he had some rough moments, dare I say moments. Most of his adult life was rough. 
beaten, stoned, dragged outside the city, left for dead, shipwrecked. I mean, the guy in jail, I mean, he had a tough, it would have been real easy for him to just give up. But he didn't because the Holy Spirit continued to give him power in the midst of anything. Fourthly, it gives you power for victory over Satan and demonic forces. We see this immediately in the book of Acts, right? Peter and John heal a lame guy who jumps up and starts doing laps inside the temple. Literally, that's what he says. Leaping, running, and praising God, doing laps. Peter and John didn't do that before. They did it then with the power of the Holy Spirit. And then lastly, the Holy Spirit gives gifts, right? Scripture tells us repeatedly that he, the Holy Spirit gives gifts widely to every believer that comes to faith in Christ. Empowered and gifted. So what does this all mean to us as the church? I, I thought, okay, I've got about 20, 25 minutes to share something. I want to make it quick. I want to make sure that it's effective. I also want it to be familiar because we don't have longer time to unpack it. But here's the real important part. This is the mission of God. It's just clearly the mission of God. It, there's no other way around it. That everyone would hear the gospel. And God chose in his sovereign plan and wisdom to empower the church to do it. And that's where we're at. The question I continually ask myself is this. If that's the time we live in, and we know that the Holy Spirit dwells in and empowers and regenerates believers, how do we actually live in light of that? What does that look like to be his witnesses? And we're not over in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. We're not in that area, but we are here even tonight in Syracuse. And you can think about Syracuse in the region, in the U.S., in the uttermost parts of the world. What does it look like to actually be the church? The way that these disciples had to be reminded. And Jesus ascends into heaven and says, go do what I've asked you to do. I said it in Matthew 28, he spoke it to them then. He ascends into heaven, the angels remind him, hey, he's coming back, just like you just saw him, get to work. There's four key questions that I use continually, both in my own life. They were shared with me a while ago. Um, I don't know the original originator of them, but I use them regularly anyways. They are four questions that help me remember the truth of the gospel and the truth of how to live that out. They're up in front of you, or they will be actually in a moment. But these four questions are ones that I use constantly. I talk with others and use, and I've seen them be super effective for doing what Jesus tells the disciples and us to do, right in these two passages. The first one is this, who is God? You have to ask yourself that question. You have to remind yourself of what you know about him. Here's one of the only ways you get to answer that question. If you don't know this, you won't know that. It's how you know God. We know God by the way he's revealed himself to us. Through his word, through the Holy Spirit, through the life of believers around you that you get to witness all the time. This is how we know who God is. So just some quick, short points of who God is. He is sovereign. He's in control. Even when you have to wear a mask and sit in a pew. He's still in charge. 
He's sovereign. He's shown us that for thousands of years. Every time his people thought, well, this isn't going well, he shows them how he's still in control. He's sovereign, he's saving, he's loving, he's powerful. That's who God is. And that's when you struggle, you gotta remind yourself who God is. Secondly, what has he done? Well, in a synopsis, he has conquered sin, Satan, and death through his son. What has he done? He's changed everything. If that's who he is and that's what he's done, then who does that make me to be? Who am I then? If I'm supposed to be in him and this is who he is and this is what he's done, who am I? A son and daughter of the king. A son or daughter of the king. That's who you are. You're redeemed. You're purified. You're regenerated. You're made new. You're empowered by the Holy Spirit. We have to remind ourselves who we are. We're going to have some issues doing what we're supposed to do. And lastly, the fourth question, how do I live in light of who I am in him? How do we live? We live the way he's called us to. Every day. Not because we just want to make a checklist and try to get it done, but because he has done it. And then he's empowered us to live like him. This power of the church changed the immediate impact the first century believers were able to have. There was no monumental global impact before this point. There was a localized impact and there was a spiritual impact by the cross and the resurrection. But the gospel didn't go out until Jesus gave them the mission and empowered them to do it. And as we think and, and act about who we are as the church, that doesn't change even today with COVID and video screens and all this, because nothing stops the mission of God. Nothing stops. We're still supposed to be exactly who the disciples were told to be. So the challenge for myself and I think for all of us is this, don't get caught staring at the sky. Be about it. The thing he's called us to do. Let's pray. 